For years in the new millennium, it seemed like one medical technology was going to cure everything. It was the dream of Christopher Reeve, the Superman who fought so hard for embryonic stem cell therapy, but never lived to receive it. The first patient in this country to receive those highly debated embryonic stem cells. You can't turn on the TV or the radio without hearing those words. We're about to put either stem cells or placebo into his coronary arteries. People are looking for ways to have their own bodies heal themselves. Their tissue is sucked out of their fat or bone marrow, and it's injected back into their aching joints. The whole process is under an hour, so a client can actually then go to work. So what happened to stem cells? Where are they? Why do we still have to wait years for an organ transplant, suffer under scar tissue, or feel debilitating pain as our joint cartilage wears away and our bones start grating themselves into chalk dust? I caught up with a stem cell researcher to find out what's going on and where the technology could be headed. The thing that kind of blew me away during my research and seeing videos of treatments, it just looked like they were getting this syringe full of stuff and just sticking it Exactly. That's exactly what it is. It's just like, that's going to work? No, it doesn't. It doesn't in the long term. And there's a large placebo effect associated with it as well. That's why a lot of the clinical evidence has been contradictory. I'll get you to say your name and your title. I'm Dr. Jiao Jiao Li from University of Technology, Sydney. I'm a biomedical engineer and a medical researcher. And what I do on a daily basis is to play around with cells in the lab (laughs) to get better therapeutics out of them. So a stem cell, in theory, can be used to repair any of these organs in our body? Theoretically, yes. Wow. Do you think that's likely to happen? Is that somewhere the technology is headed? I think we're moving more and more towards trying to find good stem cell sources that are able to regrow all organs of the body, but then I don't think we're there. Let's start at the beginning. So a stem cell, where does it come from? How is it made? It depends on what kind of stem cells you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. Should we so, choose a kind? I think we should. I think we should choose the ones that I usually use, which are mesenchymal stem cells the multipotent stem cells that are then harbored in the human body so that they can come out and repair injuries if need be. They can't become all tissues of the body, but it can become a few dedicated tissues. They are harbored in the adult body, so they can be isolated from bone marrow and fat and several other places like umbilical cord, synovial fluid and stuff. This particular type of cells has been used in clinical therapy for like decades, like maybe at least 20, 30 years. And people just inject them like everywhere, like even intravenously, but also locally as well. And they see a beneficial response, even when people have had a heart attack and you inject stem cells and people have found that they recover better. The idea was that these stem cells were doing what they usually do inside the body transforming into whatever kind of cells the body needs to repair itself. But it turned out the stem cells weren't doing that. They were becoming whatever random cells they felt like. Or they just up and left the site of the injury altogether and drained away. But the strange thing was, some people who received the stem cells were healing remarkably. So what was going on? 
if it's such a complex environment and so poorly understood, it seems like a difficult job that you've it got is. ahead of you. But I don't think people have any better options. And then, like, because these MSCs were already used elsewhere and show beneficial effects, people were like, naturally, we should just inject it into the joint and see what happens. And there is short-term improvements, definitely, because of their, especially in the first couple of months, because of their anti-inflammatory and pro-healing you know, healing responses. And I think it does induce some local repair. But I think the problem with that is, one, the cells don't stick around forever. They tend to just stick around for a few days at most probably and then just disappear because it's flushed out by the system. And secondly, these stem cells, these MSCs in particular, have this miraculous ability to respond to these different conditions and do different things. But then that also means if you chuck them into a chronically diseased environment like an osteoarthritic joint, they're going to pick up the disease characteristics eventually of the disease cells around them. So that's why I think cell therapy for chronic diseases is not going to work in the long term unless you repeatedly inject them at high doses. How are you fixing this problem? We know now that a lot of the beneficial effects of these MSCs comes from the text messages they're sending out in these tiny little sacks of biomolecules. It wasn't because these stem cells are becoming the actual tissues that were destroyed. It was because they were releasing these beneficial signals that was helping the, the damaged tissue repair itself. Can we zoom in on those signals? What's happening there? They're essentially little sacks of signals, right, that are naturally sort of being produced by the cells of the human body anyway. They might have the same beneficial effects, but they won't be affected by the diseased environment because they're not alive. They're just packages of information. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of what sending instructions yeah, to other yeah, cells? Yeah. So it's like a person sending out text messages oh, to other people, giving like signals to people around them. And depending on what the text message is saying, then you can make a person feel happy or sad. And that's doing good things to the joint or potentially making it break down more. What sort of things would these text messages say? I guess to the cartilage cells, it might be like, Oh, stop dying on yourself. <laughs> stop dying on yourself and start rebuilding the house around you. To the synovial size, like the synovium, it'll be like, stop being so angry, calm down. Because they're inflamed, right? Yeah. And then for the bone, it's kind of like, we know that you feel pain at the moment, but just put up with it and tell your neighbor cartilage cells to start building their house together so that you can stop feeling the pain. <laughs> yeah. And then um, bring in some life juice for us because that's where the blood vessels come from the bone. So that's really where their main therapeutic effects comes from rather than the fact that they actually become the tissues themselves. The cells in the tissues of your joint have a mechanism of grabbing these vesicles that are produced by other cells anyway. There's several different ways that the cells can intercept that information and then that'll change the behavior of the cells. Sometimes they fuse with the cell membrane, deliver their packages inside, otherwise they activate surface receptors and stuff. There are some studies that are published which talk about using stem cell-derived vesicles for treating osteoarthritis in mouse models. But their problem is that it's random. Like they just decide, okay, I'm just going to grow these stem cells, take these vesicles out and inject them and see what happens. Some of these studies were doing ridiculous, massive doses of stem cells that would not be clinically viable and injecting the mice three times a week for like six weeks consecutively. And I'm like, how the hell are you ever going <laughs> to 
be able to <laughs> translate that into clinical therapy. You just can't do that to patients. If we're going to go down the vesicle path, I think we need to develop a strategy to make sure we got the most potent vesicles instead of just random ones that you need to inject into a patient like every two weeks. I'm sure the effects can be optimized, and that means we will need a less number of cells to produce them, which reduces cost, and we'll have more potent effects as well. For the vesicle idea to work, you're going to need the best possible vesicles you can get your hands on. You don't want these little text messages to be a random bunch of half-baked thought bubbles. They need to be a checklist of proven-to-work marching orders. Bullet points. Dr. Zhao Zhao-Li's problem is now, which bullet points work best? And what order should they go in? She's going with a method that's been useful in developing new pharmaceuticals. It's not a new idea, but it's the first time that we're applying it in this particular field. So you can imagine for any kind of particular disease, even if you're just trying to cure a worm, for example, there's going to be like maybe 10 different drugs that you can use and they can all be applied at different doses, right? So you're not going to be able to go through like 1 million rounds of experimental trial and error to figure out what is the best combination of drugs and the doses that they're most effective at. Just because you don't have that many PhD students and that much lab space or whatever? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's costly, right? Like you don't want to go through, like that's going to take someone years. Like literally there's going to be, like if you have 10 drugs and 10 different doses for each and you need to test all the different combinations and all the different doses, like that's going to, that's not even possible to do within a person's lifetime. It's going to be millions and millions of possible combinations. And each of these assays takes time and takes cost, right? So that's where like machine learning, which is the computational algorithm, can come into use because because then you're relying partly on computational optimization, but then it's sort of like what kind of data do you put into the algorithm for it to be able to chuck out useful information? And that's why you need to combine experimental data into this. So like we're not just putting in random combinations. I mean, yes, in the first cycle, it is random. Like you're going to give them a, a list of possible candidates and a list of possible doses. And the algorithm is going to automatically pick some random combinations. So I'm going to test those random combinations in the lab on those disease cells and see what the therapeutic effects are and you know be able to quantify them using analysis methods, chuck that information back into the algorithm. The algorithm is like, okay, so we know these particular combinations have these effects. Now I'm going to change those combinations. Some of them are more similar to the previous batch. Some of them are very different from the previous batch. And then we run those again. After about eight, nine feedback loops, then you should arrive at an optimal set. So I think the rate at which we develop these new therapies will be exponentially accelerated and potentially also by conditioning the cells outside the body, we can produce vesicles that are specific for the treatment of osteoarthritis and also potentially specific to the patient as well. Something that is good about using these vesicles instead of using the cells is that you don't need to keep them alive. So potentially biomaterials like hydrogels can encapsulate these vesicles and release them over a longer time frame instead of just all at one go. It's a bit like that thing women have in their arms, the contraceptive. Yeah, yeah, like the sustained release. It feels like it's got the potential to be the world's best medicine and it's inside our bodies. Is that accurate? I think so, yeah. That's the whole point of regenerative medicine. Like that's the feel that 
of what regenerative medicine is. Regenerative medicine is about harnessing the biological interactions that we know to allow a diseased or even a healthy organ to function better and to do its own repairs. That is, I think, what medicine is heading towards in the future. Is there anyone in particular that you think of when you think of the benefits of this research? Um, maybe my dad, <laughs> because he already has ankle osteoarthritis. I can see that he has trouble walking long distances and also uphill. And I'm thinking, you know, one day this kind of therapy might help him. Chronic diseases are the biggest contributor to our healthcare problems worldwide in whatever nation you're talking about. And osteoarthritis itself is a huge problem. It affects like at least 15% of any population in a developed nation. And then when you think about the problems relating to diabetes, to cardiovascular disease, to liver disease, that pretty much means that probably every single individual somewhere <laughs> either has that problem themselves or knows someone who has that problem. You could really better use those healthcare resources dedicated somewhere else. I think the worldwide impact of developing better therapies like this is huge. I think a lot of innovative ideas people are a bit reluctant to accept it because you don't know whether it'll work. And if it's really a revolutionizing step in the field, then there's naturally going to be a lot of resistance because it's different to what people have ever anticipated. But that's where innovation comes from. Thank you, Dr. Jia Jia Li, for coming on the program. You've been listening to Think Digital Futures, heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network and supported by 2SER Radio and the University of Technology, Sydney. This program is made in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. You can listen to Think Digital Futures wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lawrence Bull. Thanks for listening.